I genuinely don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Welcome to The Writer and the Critic, a monthly podcast devoted mostly to books, reviews and whatever else takes our fancy. Hi, Kirsten. Hello, Ian. How are oh, you? My, my name's Ian Mon, by the way. And if I sound a bit <laughs> frazzled, it's because I've spent the last 25 minutes trying to charge and sort some cabling out. And it's been a nightmare. And Technology. Yes. And, uh, of course, none of you people, sorry about the banging. Still, <laughs> it's just I'm more still, cables still, getting I'm sorted. moving cords around. <laughs> No one actually listening will care because to them they won't have gone through the last half hour of uh, stupidity. So uh, aren't they lucky? <laughs> also, if uh, the sound quality is far worse, uh, that's uh, my fault 100%. It's because I've had to downgrade to do this. So Anyway, congratulations, Ian. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I you won an athlete. Yes. Another uh, athlete. Yeah, that's it. Yes, and I haven't looked. I haven't really said anything online or made anything about it because uh, not because I don't treasure the award, which is uh, apparently winding its way to me in the post as we Yay. speak. I have a uh, certificate which I will will or won't get to you at some point. Yeah, I'll never I can't that. mail it; it will get crushed. Like I said, I'll, I'll never see that. But um, <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, so I haven't said much of it. I haven't said too much on Facebook or on Twitter or anything. X. Social media, blue sky. I haven't said anything because <laughs> I, other than saying yay and thank you for everyone who's voting, I don't really know what more to say. That's fair enough. I, I will point Which out bad, I was it? at the I was at the award ceremony, and I picked the winner of every single category except oh, the athlete. <laughs> except for the athlete. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a bad friend. I did think Eugene Bacon would win the athlete. Well, I didn't expect to win it. I, 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 didn't have, I, I genuinely, genuinely did not expect to win it. So I, I will uh, I'll also point out that when I say I picked the winner, it was the person because in one category, Karen Warren tied with herself for two different stories. Yeah, okay. Yeah, she, I didn't she, know which one of them was going to win, but I was pretty sure it was going to be Karen. She had a very good mid-afternoon. <laughs> she did. So that's as much as I'm going to be talking about the athlete, but thank you very much for all who voted. I'm very, very uh, honoured. I will say this more broadly. If, if I was going to write anything on Facebook, it would be not about me winning but about the fact that reviews and reviewers and critics generally get fuck all um, <laughs> acknowledgement. In fact, the athlete is rare and unique you know, mm. in the world, not just in Australia, about giving um, uh, some recognition to people who write non-fiction or write reviews or write criticism or whatever. Yeah, so it's rare. And all reviewers, now that I'm part of the world of reviewing, (laughs) um, reviewers mostly just get smashed. They don't normally, very few get praise other than by other reviewers. You'll see that happen a lot. But you don't normally see from the general public and fair enough. Well, because it is, there is this view that anyone can just knock out a review. And, yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> no. but in, in much the same way as anyone can just knock out a novel or a short story. There, there's a reason I do this. I mean, there are several reasons I do this podcast other than the fact that Ian bullied me into it. Yes, I did. One of them is I can talk about the stuff. I can't sit my ass down and write a critical review of something to save myself. I mean, I probably could, but it would take me 20 times as long. And I don't have the time. <laughs> so I'll sit and talk with Ian for an hour or so instead, and that's fine. So, no, hats off to anyone who can actually sit down and write a clear, cogent, concise, critical review of a work of literature or a film or some other cultural you know, artifact uh, because it, it is, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I used to write reviews and I stopped because <laughs> I'm not great at it. <laughs> so... No, hats off. Uh, and I'm also going to point out that there's there's been some discussions on, uh, around my, my socials in the last week or so and at Conflux, the convention I was at in Canberra last weekend, you know, about AI and so on. And it does feel like we may be re-entering, if we ever left, I'm not sure we ever left, a new era of the gatekeeper where gatekeepers are incredibly important and that's publishers and reviewers and editors because there was an ad floating around uh, not so long ago, just a few days ago, 
I think the the banner was stop writing your own books. Let AI do it for you. <laughs> and and it's this software that has been developed supposedly that will. Um, you know, you, you can upload a sample of your writing if you've bothered to write anything at all in your life um, and give it prompts and it will write a compelling and engaging book, not like ChatGBT, but like compelling and engaging and then you can sell yeah. it and you, in 15 minutes and you don't have to do anything. And I went to the website because you know, you, you're meant to get a, like a free a, like a free go at it. I thought, all right, fine, let me see. They want your credit card first, so fuck them. It's actually probably a scam. But um the space that we've started to call indie publishing, um, you know, all those self-published authors who are going on their own and and many of them are doing doing it very well and they are paying for their own editing and proofreading and covers and all that sort of stuff and doing it at a professional level, that space is going to get overwhelmed with AI content. And it already, I, I think it already is. It, it probably already is, but it's going to get worse. And yeah, they'll if if that happens... And hopefully it won't. But if that happens, you know, catastrophically, the only solution is a shift back to, well, I'm just going to buy books I know a human being has actually acquired and edited and and can verify another human being has written, which is really awful for indie authors who work really hard and and a lot of them aren't really good books and they'll get lost in this sea of rubbish. We could talk for two hours on this. I think it's inevitable. Mm, Potentially. Anyway, let's move on to two books which were not indie published, so we're pretty sure human beings wrote these books. <laughs> well, 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 one was written in 2005 and one was written in 2010, so unless they found, uh, Peter Temple found, you know, access to technology, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, no, they, they certainly were. So you chose The Broken Shore mm-hmm. by Mr Temple. I did, I did. Uh, so the second book is Slow Horses by Mick Heron. Book one in the Slower House series, which is now an Apple TV television show, of which season three is coming out on December one. <laughs> well done for the plug. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm plugging. It. The Broken Shore is also on TV. If you really uh, yeah, it's it a film though. I think not a yes. TV series, um, but it's out there. Let's talk about Kirsten. The Broken Shore. I'm going to say a lot that this is written in 2005. It is actually really important the year it was written. Okay. What I may say about it. I don't know what you're about to say about it, but anyway. Why is it important in your opinion that we talk about this book being published almost 20 years ago? Well, I don't know if you want to do a plot summary first, but I'll... Sure. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. that. So I'll I'll do the obligate, well, the now obligatory Goodreads. Actually, you know what? I won't because I have, I have the physical book and it doesn't have a blurb in (laughs) it. I, I just I picked up the actual paperback I have and I thought I'll just read it off the book instead of looking it up on Goodreads. But the back of the paperback is literally just eight quotes from reviewers about how good the book is. So um, I'm going to go back to Goodreads. <laughs> Broken by his last case, homicide detective Joe Cashin has fled the city and returned to his hometown to run its one-man police station while his wounds heal and the nightmares fade. He lives a quiet life with his two dogs in the tumble-down wreck his family home has become. It's a peaceful existence, ideal for the rehabilitating man, but his recovery is rudely interrupted by a brutal attack on Charles Borgoyne, a prominent member of the local community. Suspicion falls on three young men from the local Aboriginal community, but Cashin's not so sure, and as the case unfolds amid simmering corruption and prejudice, he finds himself holding on to something that might be better to let go. I will point out that the city in question is Melbourne and uh, The Broken Shore is set in a fictional but recognisable coastal town along what will be familiar to many Victorians as the Great Ocean Road that runs between Melbourne, well, outside of Melbourne, along the coast, um, all the way down to and past Warrnambool, down to the Twelve Apostles, that sort of thing. So this, this is set in a fictional little area along that coast. And it's it's not really a one man police station either. There's at least two other cops who work with him. One of whom is a is a woman. But yeah, but that that's kind of that's the story, right? Broken cop sent, and he's he's also sent. He has been sent away. He's kind of not really like he's on suspension from detective duties, but not from the force. So he's no, he's got PTSD this, as a yeah, result of this. But there's also yeah. a cloud over what happened that has led to his current posting. So he's running this little cop shop down um, down the coast and 
stuff happens. So the reason I mentioned 2005 is because, first off, Deadlock didn't exist in 2005, the brilliant ABC TV series. De- de- it definitely did not. B, I was 31 <laughs> in 2005. C, I would have loved this in 2005. And D, it's a very masculine book, which probably should have gone before, uh, before all of those things. So I've changed. Obviously, the book hasn't because the book was written in 2005. And we should note uh, that Peter Temple has since passed on. He's yes. he's no longer with us. It's Authors have gone back to their own work and revised it for, you know, a new age. But I'm not that Peter Temple would ever do that with this. But No, uh, I don't think Peter Temple would ever have done that. <laughs> but it is a book um, saturated with masculinity and it is very much about men. Yeah. And that's fine and great and dandy. That's absolutely. Like it was... It- it was really well done. But I find it now very overly familiar, which I wouldn't have found it in 2005. Because I, when I when I put my, my mm-hmm. usual little pricey on um, on Facebook and other places, a bunch of people did come in and say, oh, I love this book. Yeah. And, and, and if you go by the critical standing, it is much loved, this book, yeah. probably more so than the sequel, The Truth. This, well, well, The Broken Shore was nominated for the Miles Franklin Award, didn't win, um, and then the the follow-up slash sequel truth a few years later i can't remember the year uh did win the miles franklin it won in two, it was 2009 but 2009. yeah it won it but 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 yeah. most if you if you look around people probably like the broken shore more i mean the the, the truth is isn't cash and story it's a uh, valani the, the t- yeah i've, I've not read truth yet. neither have i neither have i to be honest but so so i'm starting on a negative note because i really did enjoy this book mm. but i just noted it straight away that the sort of paired back prose, the very stunted emotional life of the main character, um, the fact that he's cynical and bitter but also is this smouldering sexiness that women like, you know, that sort of thing. That Oh, that's weird. I didn't get any smouldering sexiness. Oh, am- this is a tired, broken man. I just wanted to tuck him in bed this- and make him a cup of tea. <laughs> it's like, sir, sit down, take a break. <laughs> The reason I say that is because <laughs> for no particular good reason, uh, the the lawyer, Helen, I think the character Yeah, was. that's a bit which grated. I, I think so you've got these two antagonists. They're antagonistic, yeah? You've got the, the, they're the they're antagonistic in terms of their profession yeah. because, I mean, so what, what this, um, like the, the blurb I read sort of hint, hinted at it, but so what happened is Charles Bournion, who's a very – was a very wealthy local individual whose family went back forever. You know, it's like the family of the town uh, was murdered quite brutally and a watch was stolen from among, you know, other things that happened. There was a very, very expensive designer watch that was stolen and this watch uh, apparently turned up in the hands of two young Aboriginal boys from the town at a pawn shop in Sydney. So suspicion is cast on them. The uh, police of like a neighbouring townlet where they live who are not good police in any way, no. uh, entrap these young men and on, a, on a road uh, sort of stakeout thing. Uh, there is an accident. There's gunfire. Uh, two of the boys die. The third boy who, who was with them in Sydney survives but later possibly commits suicide, is possibly thrown off a cliff by said police. So there is all of this weight and the lawyer who Ian mentioned is representing the surviving boy until he dies. So she is in a professional antagonistic role with Joe Cashin. But also Cashin, Cashin won't give her any information. He won't admit. He's, he's well, taking. The, I mean, police don't do, do that. No, I know. But, but he's. <laughs> like you don't give information to the defence lawyer. But this is. Except what, okay, what comes that, out in discovery through the proceedings. That's fair enough. But. So I'm not saying he should have. I'm saying there is no, there's no chemistry <laughs> between these two characters beyond them not liking each other until they have sex. Well, what Temple does is he tries, and I don't think it's successful. I'll say it up front, and it's it's one of the elements of the book that really grated on me. The second half of this novel was very disappointing to me coming out of the first half or even the first two thirds. And then you rolled in, which we'll talk about, you rolled into sort of the in the final sequences. It's like, really, really? Oh God, really? And one of those was this relationship with the lawyer and Cashin. And 
I feel like the author tried to backfill that by giving them a history as teenagers. They knew each other. They went to school together. They knew each other. There was a little bit of a thing back then, not so much, just a tiny thing. It wasn't as though they were really like a couple or going out or anything like that. You know, he was definitely infatuated her. Maybe she liked him. But that's decades ago and they're adults now and they haven't seen each other for ages and that it didn't give me enough yes for 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 me to feel like these two characters could just fall back into that kind of a relationship if they'd had an actual relationship right sustained over a number of months or even just weeks but it was an actual you know relationship then that may have laid the ground a little bit better for that kind of falling back into old habits sort of thing. And I think that's what the book was trying to do and it, did, it didn't manage to do that for me. And it was like, and I also didn't think it was necessary. It was one of those beats that it wasn't necessary because for me the relationship, in the, and I know you referred to Cashin as emotionally, did you say stunted? Or, yeah, I did. Yep. And I felt... Like that's a really interesting way to put it because I, outwardly I think anyone who knows him would would say that. But because we're privy to his inner self, it's written in third person direct. Um, and because we're privy to that, he's full of emotion. Is he though? He is. He's just like it's there. He's just he's not wanting guilt. to deal I, with it. He, yeah, well, that's the thing. He's full of guilt and he's full of unresolved issues that, yeah. that go back to the to his own father and yeah. there's a whole thing about mental health. But none of it's articulated clearly. It's, it's all brimming under the surface. I get all that, but that's why I yeah. say he's stunted. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it, it doesn't feel fully. I, say I don't think stunted. I think repressed. Because stunted okay, implies there enough. is no emotion, like there, there's just nothing there. There's a lot there that he is just trying to keep a lid on, <laughs> and yeah. he probably should. But the re- but the relationship, what I was saying, the the relationship in this book that was the most interesting to me and had the most potential to enable Cashin's reopening and his growth and his reconnection with the world was with Reb, the yeah, the itinerant. That's- slash homeless guy who he picks up, a, a, you know, staying in a neighbor's barn who got scared by him and he kind of goes to run him out of town in a, ni- in a nice way, uh, ends up giving him a job and a home, like a home and like a roof over his head and a job back at his ruined family shack, which is such a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> I, I loved it. Uh, and it's that relationship between the two men that was really textured and nuanced and subtle and said all the things without saying hardly any of them. And that that was the relationship that gets Cashin out of the hole. And having this weird romantic thing tacked on at the end, it's like, why? He didn't he didn't need that. Yeah, what I he agree. needed that, that, was the relationship with Reb, which was beautifully done and beautifully realized and complex. Right, yeah. And and Reb was his own character. He wasn't just a vehicle. And that that was enough, and I just felt like, yeah, the the romantic thing with the lawyer was like, why? And, and then it also sort of shoved her into the box of, oh, she was just there, so you know, Cashin could evolve emotionally um, because she, like, I couldn't see why she had a reason to. So, like him. so she instigates everything, and this is the thing that I just, mm. I just, yeah, um, she instigates everything, and it's like, why? I why well, I'm in this guy's head, and I can't see why. <laughs> Like he's not like he's damaged goods, darling. Like leave him on the shelf a bit longer. He needs to fix himself. Because she's the most fully fledged uh, female character in the book. It it does. It just yeah. It's look again. I'm going to say it again. Two thousand five for me. It just because this is where this is where deadlock. And of course, you haven't seen Deadlock. It's a bit difficult. Deadlock is extraordinary. Deadlock has no right to work, and it no, no. But it takes a very similar. Uh, plot, mm. um, uh, small town, powerful families. There's even even with the the partner in Deadlock. There's mm. some connections, you know. But deconstructs it all and yeah. does it brilliantly. And you know, so having those two together is really really interesting. Having them knock knock heads, even though obviously they're eighteen years apart. So they are, uh, but the, but they're in the same genre. 
And but, but they're not just in the same genre; they're, they're in the they're in the same niche of that genre. Yes, yes. Because even yes. because even the, the the cop character in Deadlock is coming from the city, Sydney. Mm-hmm. She's had a terrible experience. She's had a thing. She's had a thing, <laughs> and she's gone to a, a small cop shop. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of the same beats and niche is there is there, and it's just fascinating to see it. You know, she she's not I, she's not isolated like Cashin is in this novel, though. She's surrounded by people. No, if anything, she's, a, she's surrounded by too many people. Yes, which is which is part of the joke. Yes, there's yeah. too much warmth and support. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I, I know. It's just like, reflecting. It's just reflecting on this book in that sense, which of course wouldn't have been the case if I'd read it. Two thousand five. <laughs> Two thousand five. But I agree with you. Everything you've said there about about Reb, and the other thing that's quite incredible about the book, again, twenty twenty three, irrelevant is. His depiction and his, the whole thing around First Nations people. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, it's a very racist book, but not not racist as in Peter Temple's racist. It's not a racist book. It portrays racism. Yes, sorry, very I, well. <laughs> yes, sorry. Let's let's not like that's not going to be the grab from this podcast. The Pro Show by Peter Temple. It's a very racist, racist book. book. <laughs> It, it has it has lots yeah. of uh, spicy racist language, uh, which it was so. People. Uh, clever in that way, I thought. So Temple Pepper's horribly racist language in the, in the mouths of other characters, not Joe Cashin, throughout the beginning of the book. And I'm not going to say what words they use, but you can imagine they're they're Australian words, so it's not the N word, but it is other words. And I'm not going to to say that it should have been changed and not a word of it should have been changed. But Temple does this really clever thing where you're reading them and, you know, depending on your tolerance, you might you might just go, no, I, I, I'm done and, and put the book down. It's not like saturated, but there's enough little barbs where as a reader you go, oh, that's not great, but okay. And and I'm, I was actually thinking to myself early-ish in the book, a few chapters in, thinking, oh, like I get it, I get it. It's reflective of reality. It's you know characterizing these other people in a certain way. This is the language they would use. Yep, I'm I'm going to get very weary of this. I think as just writing this you know this gritty realism for want of a better word. <laughs> and then one one chapter ends with this really hideous cameo character who runs a like a fuel stop with with some. Yes groceries and stuff and he says something awful and Cashin just punches him in the face and it's like okay I'm yes, on board I had now the same reaction because I'm on board you, now yeah because you because you can yeah exactly because you just wanted to do that and Cashin does it for you yeah, and correct. that's when his hand is well and truly played beforehand like you got the sense that he he didn't like this kind of like talk, but he didn't really because he's a cop. But it was so other he, cops talking that way. And other he, cops uh, talking that way for the most part, and you go. So you definitely got the impression he did not appreciate this. But also, it's like, is he just gonna? And, and and yeah, when he gets a chance to punch someone in the face for saying something awful, <laughs> and I'm not necessarily saying we should all go around to do that, but it, in the in the book, it was like, okay. Good. All right. I can tolerate this better now because I absolutely know my protagonist will not tolerate it on my behalf. So, okay. All right. Fine. Um, Yeah. And of course, all this, so it could all be, you know, as you were saying, it could be, if, if not without that scene, it could be all edgelord. Yeah. Peter Temple just just doing it because he can, but what becomes abundantly clear post, but even before, but yeah, post that scene is that, this is a commentary on the way police have yeah. for a very long time treated First Nations people in Australia, that the Indigenous, it's just shock. And the fact that we're, we're having to relive all this right now with the yes vote and just this this sea of, of, of overt racism, which is actually overt a lot of the time It's because people say, oh, it's it's bubbling under the surface and this is just brought into, no, it's not that much bubble. It's not it's that bubbling depending overt. where you live and what circles you move in. Yeah, exactly. And so what, what Temple's brought to bear is, the reality it's it, it, and the, the brazenness of it within the mm. within within the, the, the this sort of environment just they, they have no guilt they have no shame and he has to come along and clock this bloke um he doesn't unfortunately i don't think he clocks the, the really naughty police officers no he doesn't um 
And so it's so confronting, much, but it's confronting because it's reality. And yeah, that's exactly. what's upsetting about yeah. it. There's so much I really liked about The Broken Show. I loved the language. I his loved description of the natural world, his description of Melbourne, but also regional Victoria is just amazing. The observational writing is fantastic. Oh, I loved the the little um, the little textural things like uh, Joe Cashin has, like he's living alone in this ramshackle, half-destroyed house that he decides to rebuild which is kind of a Sisyphean task, I feel, but anyway. And he has two dogs. And instead of them being like two Alsatians or two Kelpies, or they're giant standard poodles. Like there's these wonderful little like (laughs) textures in this book that provide unexpected. Yeah, you know, it's just, and I mean, look, like a standard poodle is a large, like there's nothing funny about a standard poodle. They're a large looking dog. They're, you know, curly. Are they? Yeah, I'm yeah. Google yeah, they're quite large. And, you know, if they're showed, they will get trimmed in the the hilarious poodle manner. But they're just. They're, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Nice yeah, 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 yeah. But, but yeah, yeah okay. poodle itself is an inherently funny dog. It just is <laughs> because of all the connotations around poodles. So for this, you know, grizzled, re- recalcitrant police officer to be walking around his little farm with two poodles is it's things like that like there's there's a note of um not always bleak but but very deadpan humor running through it um, usually running through joe and in, in the comments he will make or the observations he will make so it's not an entirely bleak book and there, as I said, there is so much I really love about it the relationship between him and Jed the relationship between him and his cousin as well yes. Burn? Yeah, there's yeah. so much. And the really complex familial relationships he has with his brother and his mother and th- there's just so much to love about this book and I was really enjoying reading it. Until? And in a similar way, I'm like reading and going, how is he doing this? The writing is so simple and sparse. How is he getting all of this into these words? Is it in the spaces? Where can I find it? Um, and then it did this thing where it just it turns into a different book so it's and we're going to spoil it obviously but as we've said it's 20 fucking years old people if you've not read it you're getting spoiled where it goes from a story which is really focusing on you know the racism side of things the corruption in the police force the uh you know the the tensions in small towns the oh and there's a whole like there's development happening and that's an issue and there's all of this political stuff he's got you know one of the um characters who who runs through it is a, is a politician who who is the unfortunately named is it Australia United Party? Yeah, it's something similar. Yeah, very unfortunately named in retrospect, thanks yeah, given to a, they're a given awful they're a politician. Party. Yeah, given they're in, they're, they're they're like uh, more green than the Greens. Yeah, but anyway, that's yeah, you know, two thousand five. Clive Palmer wasn't on the public stage then with his crappy racist party. Uh, so all of this stuff, and it was so good, and and it's then it's almost like the book went. But you know what? This isn't big enough, and it was plenty big enough. Like racism and police corruption and the gentrification and development of small towns and what happens to the people in those towns, like that's big stuff. But instead, we're going to have a decades-old child sex abuse ring. Um, that gets revealed, uh, and it's when, like when it's revealed, my, my, my stomach plummeted. <laughs> I know, and the also like it's that's there. It's like oh okay, and then everything else kind of just fell by the way. Like everything connected back to it in a way. It clearly wasn't the 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 three um, boys who were at all involved in this crime, and the watch they had was watch a watch that had been stolen years before, and it turned up and made the rounds, and they had nothing to do with it. That all kind of got flattened by this this enormous weight of this uh, child trafficking sex abuse ring that was, as I said, like st- like it's decades old and it was done through something kind of like like a private sort of Boy Scouts kind of <laughs> organization. And that scene when he goes back to Melbourne and he's in that old hall, um, yeah. which kind of felt like a Masonic temple sort of thing, and, and the guy's strung up. And the guy, there, you know, there's a grisly murder that he's just happened to find, and then the murder is already there's there in the hall as well. Just as this, just as Co- Joe Cashin comes in, and he's like, there's this like almost jump scare on the page, and it's like, oh my god, it just, 
it just changed tempo and tone and but also everyone grounding. he meets in it's like some the way, rug got pulled out from under you and not in a good way everyone he meets including reb is somehow suddenly connected connected, connected in a way that is just <sighs> Yep. Utterly unrealistic, or yeah, yeah, and, and it's just one revelation piled on at the top of another, of and all it's the space too of 50 much. Pages. And your suspension of disbelief just comes crashing down. Yeah. And the things that I loved about this book just got pushed to the side. And it's not like obviously we're not saying that that, that child abuse and human trafficking it's not bad, and it's not something that's worthy of being written about. It's just that the book was talking about one thing, which is also incredibly important and serious and isn't talked yes. about enough, and just pushed it aside to say, here's this other thing that you'll be interested in more. And I wasn't. I wasn't interested. Because also it's Weird. not a nuance, because it's not nuanced. It's it's a Bunch of dirty old men, men running a camp for yep. uh, disenfranchised. Exactly, youth. it's it's like the most you know over the top example of what correct child abuse is. And I know there are like it, it, I'm sure it's real. I'm sure there's very similar oh, yeah, things yeah. happening. Well, well, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he based it on a real thing. Um, but it's also just it's so overwhelming for what this book is um, that it was to as a reader it was just like I I it disconnected me emotionally from the novel in some way and then you had oh then you had the the plot with the lawyer becoming a romantic thing and from that point on everything you started to see and I don't know if this would be true for every reader but certainly as a writer I started to see the mechanics of the book and the pieces moving and that slotting into place and that's why that was here that came here and there we go and and it became just a little bit mechanical and I lost the texture and the emotional depth and the subtlety and the nuance that I had been enjoying so much and to the point where it's like, I I think I've read Peter Temple now. I don't think I need to read another Peter Temple, which may be unfair, but he's also the writer who is behind the series of Jack Irish, which Have I've not read, read the Jack? books. You I've, not, no. I've seen it, uh, like some of the episodes of the TV series that were made and I am – very uninterested in that character and that those he's, that's a, he's a gambler is that right yeah he's he's a lawyer and he has gambling issues and he's he's you know he's the anti-hero and i'm done <laughs> so the books may be really different i don't know but i'm not interested so um and just based on the broken shore as much as i love the writing like it's gorgeous gorgeous writing um i just couldn't couldn't cut, like at the end of that book, it, it just felt hollowed out. The book that yeah, I've been enjoying, I had the same not- crushing uh, sort of uh, crushing disappointment. Yeah, at the end, but uh, but but yeah, I'm not going to repeat what you just said because you've said and articulated my thoughts and feelings about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, which it, this it will is be my shame. only Peter Temple as well. So yeah, yeah and sorry. it is a shame because I I did yeah. There's so much I absolutely loved about it. However, and this is my segue. Can I do a segue? You can do a segue. I may read another Mick Heron. <laughs> <laughs> Good segue, Ian. <laughs> That's not to say Slow Horses doesn't also have problems, but um, but I was more satisfied by the end of it than I was with The Broken Shore. So should we segue? Should we? Should we, we should, should segue. We... So the second book that we're reading is... Yes, Slow Horses, Slough House Book One by Mick Heron, and I'm going to do the uh, blurb, which looks like an essay. It's quite long. Um, London, England. Slough House is where the washed-up MI5 spies go to while away what's left of their failed careers. The Slow Horses, as they're called, have all disgraced themselves in some way to get relegated here. Maybe they messed up and not badly and can't be trusted anymore. Maybe they got in the way of an ambitious colleague and had the rug yanked out from under them. Maybe they just got too dependent on the bottle. Not unusual in this line of work. One thing they all have in common, though, is that they all want to be back in the action. And most of them would do anything to get there, even if it means having to collaborate with one another. River Cartwright, one such slow horse, is bitter about his failure and about his tedious assignment transcribing cell phone conversations. When a young man is abducted and his kidnappers threaten to broadcast his, his beheading live on the internet, River sees an opportunity to redeem himself, but is the victim who he first appears to be. 
And, what, and what's the kidnapper's connection with a disgraced journalist? As the clock ticks on the execution, River finds that everyone has his own agenda. So I, know, I come to this, obviously, with a bunch of people saying that it's a terrific series. So prior before me picking this up, so I've been mean to pick it up for a long time, mm-hmm. and I come to this with um, the knowledge of the TV series, which has Gary Oldman, which everyone loves. Have, and you've not watched? I've watched the first episode. I just okay. watched the first episode, and I like the book, but. but. <laughs> Don't worry, I have I have butts all over the place for this book. <laughs> but I feel like so having watched the first episode of the TV series, I feel like I don't know if I made the, did I make the right choice reading the book first. I think I did because I think if I'd watched based on just even the first episode, if I'd watched that or the entire first season first and then read the book, I'd have been even more disappointed. If that in makes, the book. In the book, yes, if that yeah. makes sense. No, it does make sense. Because I think, um, what they've done, at least again, based on one 58-minute episode, is they have – because because obviously the, – the, the, okay, so the key issue I have with the book is that it's stodgy. In what in what way? What do you mean oh, by it's, that? It's over-expositional. There seems to be a lack of confidence at times in that the reader will understand what's going on and so mm-hmm. the parents seem to feel the need to repeat things every so often, especially yep. the first 30 is just very repetitive. Yep. So it, it, it calms down and the last quarter, actually in complete reverse of the book we just talked about, the last third I think is actually really, really fun. But it it takes a bit of getting there with all the intri- – and I know he has to introduce the concept and he has to introduce the characters, etc. Okay, got all that. It's just that in the TV series you're not – you don't have pros holding you back and you can do what he does in five pages, you can do in 15 seconds. And that's, yes. that's the advantage. And so – uh, and the t- and based on the, again the first episode, it's very faithful uh, to to the book. Have you watched any of it? I have not. Um, Jason's watched the whole first series and really, really loved it, and did say that I would probably like it. So I was intending to um, to watch it. The opening scene in the book is matched in the TV series, but it's ch- they change the location. So rather than have it be around a subway station. It's an airport. It does actually, funnily enough, end. At, at, in fact, it ends in exactly the same way at a, right. right next to a, a train, but it doesn't start there. It starts in an airport, and so it's, it's, it's so they amp it up. But that, but that's not that's not consistent across all the events that are replicated. They don't amp everything up. Uh, that right. just that opening they do. So it is very. I found the opening scene. It was really clever. Like it was good, like it was action. You didn't know, spoilers again, you didn't know it was an exercise. You thought it yeah. was a, a real event that River and, the, you know, MI5 are trying to And that's stop. how they played in the TV series. It is done completely as if this is yeah, thousands of people are going to die. Sort of and thing. what, what really you think is, is it, it, it's that horrible subway bombing that actually occurred in London. Yes. And it ends up being it was an exercise that River failed catastrophically or always set up to fail catastrophically uh, the the latter yes um but you find that out much more. He, he suspects it from the beginning but it's confirmed much much like near the end of the book but it was so well done and it was really dynamic and it was like it just dropped you straight into the the book and into the character of river who in that moment except for the fact that he apparently fucks up until that moment he seems very fucking competent (laughs) and it's really good like it's a great opening and unfortunately for me the the rest of the book didn't match up or live up to that opening I think was the problem and it's not that I was expecting a really action-packed book but I just thought the you know the dynamics of that the way that was working the restraint that Heron had in putting that together wasn't evidenced in the rest of the book that followed. And, and there's some really good craft work in this book, but there's also a lot of missteps and it just irritated me. Such as? Well, um, I mean, there's some of that that you will know, Ian, that I really, there's, there's head hopping oh. in, in, in yes. many cases, unnecessarily so. so. I want to just say to the listeners, the moment I see head hopping in a book, I go, yeah. oh, fuck. 
And when I say that, I don't mean like different scenes told from different character POVs. I know what and there's you lots mean. of that and they're done really well. But there's there's crucial scenes in this book where, for example, Lamb, who's the head of Slough House, is meeting with the the big bad, Taverner. And it hops between their perspective of each other. And the tension in that scene is done because instead of it, it being from Lamb's perspective, which most of it is, and him having to read her and read you know, why is she saying that, what she's thinking, what's her motive, we get told it. It will then slip into her point of view and she notices something about him. or she. And it's like, stop, you're just yes. draining the tension from these scenes <laughs> by giving us everybody's perspective. It also has the effect of just um, disorienting the reader and not in not in a way that the novel is wanting you to be disoriented. You're just constantly having to go, oh, where am I standing now? Okay, oh, I'm over here now, I'm over here now, and reorient yourself. And it just it leaves you very much outside of those scenes. And it's a shame because so much of what Heron does in his scenes, they're, they're very intense. You're very much in the point of view of a character. You don't know whether to trust their perspective they're not or what they've seen or what they've heard or what they think they've seen and heard. And that's part of what makes these sorts of books. It's a, it's, you know, it's a spy book. It's kind of a thriller. It's what part of makes them work is that the reader is not quite sure at any point who they can really trust. And, and it's not that someone may not be trustworthy, I think River is very trustworthy. I'm just not sure I trust what he thinks he's seeing and hearing and doing. <laughs> and that's really effective. But when you head hop around, and it's also not done consistently, there's not a consistent omniscient voice that would let you deliver that. There's not. No, again, I, I felt I felt that was all done because, again, there's a lack of confidence. It's the first book in his, you know, in his yeah. series. There's a lack of confidence in that the reader will fully get what's going on in the scene because there are subtleties going yeah. on. Um and yeah, I think he, he just felt he felt the need at least, and I don't know, this could be a problem in all what 12, 13 books that there are, but he felt a, a lack of confidence. I'm, I'm assuming this, I don't know, we have a clue, but well, we can't assume what the right writer intended or felt, but it has the effect, at least on me as a reader, of the impression that the author doesn't trust me to understand what's yes. happening. That's right. That is that is exactly how – and I felt that way throughout the and whole And I book. resent that. And, and it's funny because prior to reading it, I watched one of the greatest TV series of all time, which I now heavily recommend to every human being on the planet, <laughs> which is The Sandbaggers, okay. which in a sense is very similar to Slow Horses. It, 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 it's sort of. So it's it's the series it's, – it's, uh, it was made in 1978, uh, went over three seasons, very short seasons. idea of The Sandbaggers is that it's a – um, special uh, investigation unit, uh, SIS, um, that uh, it's, it's a very small team uh, made up of the, the director, Neil Burnside, who's, who's, who's like Lamb but wears, doesn't fart. It's like the polar opposite but also very similar in thinking. Anywho, he runs these sandbaggers. These are special ops agents. But the point of the mm-hmm. show, what makes it so amazing, is that it's about what's going on in Westminster and in the back end. It's not about the shooty-shooty. It's yep. about the talky-talky. Um, it's like if you took Yes, Prime Minister, but without the comedy and actually made it like right. a serious TV show, but had spy stuff in it too. And there is shooty-shooty and stuff happens and it can be very brutal. In fact, it's extremely brutal. If you ever wonder where Spooks, if you've seen Spooks, ever got its brutality yeah. from, it's from the Sandbaggers. But it has all that and it never, ever talks down to the audience except one little thing where – we keep getting reminded in every episode that a key uh, um, private secretary is the father-in-law of uh, or ex-father-in-law of Neil Burnside. But apart from that, that constant from that. you could do that drinking game, but apart from that, it never speaks down. It's, it just You have to come along with it, otherwise you get lost in its wake. And that was my – and so having watched that and then read this, I thought, ah, yeah, okay, um, yes, interesting. What I find really interesting f- just for me personally is I I really like spy fiction. Well, have you read like Harry? Because I haven't. And this, well, this is, is a the thing. Huge like on screen, right? Okay. I, I love spooks. I mean, it went a little bit wobbly at the end. <laughs> um, you know, I, I love, uh, you know, spy films and not not James Bond it's not not really spy stuff um but yeah that that the really gritty gritty craft work type spy stuff I, so sandbaggers I makes James Bond jokes all the time I anyway, think I will need to watch sandbaggers um and I and I love it and I haven't I don't really like it on the page I I read a few Le Carre's back like when I was very young back in the day and I just I I don't 
really like reading it. And I believe this will probably be the same with Slow Horses. I'm sure I will love the TV show. And I didn't love the book so much. And I think part of that is when it's on film, unless it's really badly done, almost by virtue of the fact that it is on film, it needs to leave a lot unsaid. It needs to leave a lot to the viewer to to interpret because you don't have a narrative telling you why someone said something, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. You have to pick that up from the actor's cues and their tone and body language and so on. And also by its very nature, if it's done well, on film it, it is very dynamic, right? You're not having usually these slow drawn out introspective things that you often get in the page okay yeah uh, look, okay but yes, that's but... me that the slow house series is beloved and acclaimed now and and sells really well the thing i would say though is and i know it's not the same genre but it's they're adjacent the maltese falcon not the film the book mm-hmm. the shield hammett's book makes a point of never ever allowing you into sam spade's mind ever at any point mm. it, it, you, it's always the reactions of others on him mm. And it, it, it's amazing he does this in, what, 1930, whatever it was, or uh, late 20s, and yet, and it's, it's, and it's tight and sparse and nuanced, and you understand that this guy's got his own motivations, his own worldview, but we're never let into it. It's always others reacting around I'm it. I'm not yet, saying you can't I, no, what do I'm it saying, on no, page. No, I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. The yeah. point I'm saying is 90 years later, we feel the need to have to explain everything. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. We, what we do, that's, not, that's a generalisation. I'm certainly it is right. A, it is a, I mean, you absolutely can do it on the page, but whether it's reader's taste or just the way we write now, we, we tend not to. Because it's not just crime. It's not just this. It's not just spy stuff. There's a lot of genre stuff, science fiction, fantasy that does this. I mean, I think Peter Temple's book does it incredibly well. Like Peter, the writing in Peter Until Temple's Until he has to actually book, do the plot. Until I actually, until he yeah, so yes, gets bogged right. down the in the plot. But the writing itself is really subtle, really nuanced, really textured. It doesn't lay out exactly why Joe Cashin is thinking something or feeling something or not feeling something. And that kind of writing is just beautiful and it allows the reader to to come into the, the narrative themselves and to make those connections. And that's really satisfying for a reader. And I think when books get over-explaining and Mick Herron, I, I don't know about the rest of the Slow House series, but with Slow Horses, as you said, Ian, he, he does explain things several times, in, in the same thing. You know, he'll he'll have literally almost the same conversation between two sets of characters instead of just saying, you know, Liam explained it to them, blah, 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 done. And Correct. then, you know, you have the same conversations. Like we've, we've just, like, is it deja vu? Have I, I'm sure I've read this before. <laughs> um, and that's, for, as a reader, that that feels quite clumsy. It's like beating over the head and going, I, "I don't know if you got it before, so let me tell you again." It's like stop. Yeah, because because there were the, there were these scenes where where we're told what the what they did wrong, like Roddy yeah. and Shirley and all that. But then but then it's all just told between the characters as well. And I again, know one is from I the perspective know. of the person who did it wrong, versus but they're the not telling us anything different. Correct. It's not as though we were told here's what they did wrong, and then you go, "Well, actually, yes." Like you're not getting something new in that retelling. It's just. And there's a lot. There's a lot of that. There's a, enough head hopping to really irritate me when it happens. I, for me, one of the big um, reason this book didn't work for me, and it's a look. When you have an ensemble cast, and this is whether it's a spy novel, it's a heist movie, which I also love. I love heists. I love you know uh, man things. Love all that because it's clever and it's smart and things happen. You don't expect it and you're guessing it and then it's wrong and it's but it's still wonderful in that you were wrong. And I just love them and I love ensemble cast and I love looking at people who are good at what they do working together. All of that stuff. Tick, 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 tick. And sometimes, not always, but often it feels like your primary character that these stories circle around is often your least interesting character. <laughs> And for me, River was not that interesting and, and not that engaging. And I also found him really fucking petulant a lot of the time. And I just wanted to slap him and sit him in a corner. So the, the, the TV series draws on that. As in, it, it, it says, yeah, this guy's petulant. He is. Which is which is fine. And that's his character. But I got a bit wearying in a book, which is took me a long time to read. And it just got wearying. And I don't know how you get, how you balance that. It's not helped that Heron clearly loves Lamb and loves Tavener. They're the two yeah. figures that he absolutely loved. And, and probably in third place, um, Catherine Standish. 
But but the, oh, the first Catherine Standish, so, I loved. But but so his main point of view character, who doesn't stick with the whole book, but yep. is essentially uh, the person we're meant to, uh, uh, yep. you know, he's he's he is the protagonist. Yeah, yes. We get so we River, get scenes from he, other points of view, but River is the protagonist. At least of this stuff. River doesn't get. Yeah, River is uh, is a side player. It, it, the people he wants to spend, we want to spend time with, and clearly Heron does too. Are those guys? And unfortunately, they're not. He can't make them the centre of the page because, well, the book would be much shorter. Because <laughs> it would be much much shorter. <laughs> Correct. So, and I get that. I get all that. I just, I don't know. And we haven't even talked about the plot because the other thing that I I just similarly I think with the Temple book. Once the the final, I guess everything is revealed about what's actually going on. At least, at least I sat back and went, "Really?" So, so can I just do it in two sentences, please? <laughs> yes. The MI five under Taverner, who are trying to get a PR boost, kidnap a Muslim guy uh, who they hope then to save, because partly because of the shit that Cartwright, River Cartwright did, uh, you know, to, to to improve their image. Yeah, so to, they, they run to say that they can be successful at things. Yes. So they, so they run their own kidnapping scam and, of course, it all goes horribly wrong. And also the, the kid that they – well, I say kid. He's like in his early 20s, I think. He's a stand-up yeah, comic. Yeah. He's the nephew of, of a, a an important international figure. A, a Pakistani ambassador, I think it was, uh, general, yeah. or general or something. General. So, so it all goes horribly wrong. It's also if, if Taverner is meant to be so whip-smart and in control of stuff – that's a very bad, or even a cyber, even black ops, even like a blacker than black ops, even an operation that no one's meant to know about. Still, so sloppy. They're very so sloppy. many ways for it to go wrong. But, but yeah, so very many sloppy. bad decisions she made in orchestrating that. But also the fact that she's underestimating Lamb and all this sort of stuff, mm. and you think really, I yeah, you haven't really thought this through, have you? No. Um, and, and look, there are other things which are, they're funny, but they're also a bit on the nose, like the fact that Judd is clearly Boris Johnson, and yeah, you know, and you the think, hair, uh, the bicycle, yeah, you, know. you think <laughs> just call him Boris Johnson. Then I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I just think if you're going to do that, just just do it properly. Just do it. I I don't have a problem with that because you you run into all sorts of legal implications. I know that. I get you... that. Having said that, it does it does. I mean, again, to 2010. This one was written in 2010. Now, there was a lot of talk about the European Union at the time, <laughs> but obviously Brexit hadn't happened, but it, it forecasts. The book does mm. basically land the fact that, uh, that, that you know, the, a populist right-wing leader is going to rip it, rip England from the, uh, from yeah. the EU. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Look, I liked it enough that I'm going to read the second one because uh, it is fun. Uh, probably not. I liked it enough that I'm going to watch the series. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Because well, I, 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 I think that will be more. Okay, so I've, I've now read the first book and I'm going to watch the first season. There's now a second yep. season and a third coming out in yeah. two months. So, so I would definitely watch them because I, I, I think there's enough. Well, do I read the book that, and then watch the second series or do I, do I, do I just go? Oh, no, I'm going to watch. No, no. I, I, I know what I, you're going to do. I'm I'll what be I'm watching the series now. I, I, I'm done with the books. Um, <laughs> but I think there's, to, I mean, to Heron's credit, like it, it, like there's a, there's enough really interesting stuff in the books that I think it will make a superb television series, especially with the cast who I know uh, are delivering the the characters. Um, so I'm really interested in watching it and I don't think knowing the story will actually ruin the watch for me. If anything, it'll be like because I know I'm not going to get disappointed in a, <laughs> a ludicrous plot reveal. It's like, yeah, I know what they're doing. I just want to see how they do it now. Um, so I will keep watching it. But I, I, I just feel like, yeah, I, I think I think spy fiction and probably some of the, the genres of, of film and TV that I love are just not going to work for me on the page. And maybe Mick Heron's book has made me realise that, which is great. Um, but I also don't think it, it is all spy fiction. I'm, I'm sure there's some really excellent spy fiction that I, I mean, it's also what I would engage with, let's face it. It's not like I'm not casting a pall over an entire literary genre. <laughs> because, because but it's just not what swear, I engage people, with. Okay, but people swear by this series and the Heron verse. Apparently there yes. are novellas and other things yep. around this whole thing. And, and look, I'm not going to just read it for the sake because people love it, but I will give the second book a try because, again, this is 13 years old and I've, Writers develop; they get well. They get more confident in their characters. Let me know if you keep reading them and they get really good. 
Let me know and I might revisit So, so what it might come down to, as it often does, and I think this is what happens, it, it won't be about the prose as much as it will be about an enjoyment of the characters. And, the and I think unfortunately you- for me that the prose is something that I often, if I trip over it enough, I, I can't move on. You know, it doesn't have to be amazing. I, I think I need to make this clear. It, a book doesn't have to be like amazingly poetically beautifully written. It doesn't have to be Peter Temple good for me to to go. Okay, I can I can read this now. You know, it can be it can be much more simple. It can be much more you know less elegant. Whatever. It just it just can't make as many mistakes on a craft level as I feel slow horses did. Like another one which really irritated me. So the 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 young man who's um, being held hostage and is in a basement for the most of it and is going to yeah. be beheaded. And there's three people who have kidnapped yeah. him and are plotting and he and I know where you're going with this, but torture him and abuse him and blah blah blah. And he refers to them as um, Curly, Larry, and Mo, which is fine. And there's there's a reason why he does that. It's something you know his father used to to say, and he's and then he doesn't know their names, so we give names to people, and this is what he's chosen, and it's really well done. And while it is you know, and the narrative then later adopts that, and that's fine because even when it's from the perspective of these characters, it's not naming them for the reader; it's taking what the kidnapped person has named them, and that works really well until in a very crucial scene one of these characters calls another character Larry and it's like what how did that what that's not their actual names that is not their names and it's also not their own code names it's something the kid made up what the how did that get through editing how did that get through editing? I had to go back into the book, and I want a Kinder, so it's not that fucking easy, Mick Heron. I had to go all the way back and read that first bit where these names are introduced to, to reassure myself that, yes, no, this is what it is, and that that later bit, and it's and, and it's climactic scene. It completely ejected me from it because it's just a fucking error, and I don't know how that got through editing. I really don't. And it, and there was little things like that where it's just like, wait, I thought, and I'd go back and check, and it's like, yeah, okay, and... That is going to 100% ruin my enjoyment of anything I read, anything. It's like if you're watching something and the boom comes into frame, it's like, oh, come on, like, come on. Like I know it's filmed. I know you got a boom there, but don't fucking show me. Don't show me the mistakes. Why didn't that get edited out? Reshoot it. Fucking come on. And that just, I, I just can't. I can't with shit like that. So if they get better. Let me know because I'm really interested in some of the characters. So what you're trying to tell me is you're not going to jump and read Reconstruction, which came out in 2008, which technically predates the first Star Wars book, but it has characters that are similar and does some backstory. So there's this whole verse here. Yeah, I I get it. His first novels are the Zoe Bohm series or Bohm and – from the, and the, so his first novel was 2003. And she's a, she's a private investigator or a Yeah, I believe so. And they somehow interconnect and yeah. you're not going to – And gonna... that – look, that stuff for a lot of readers is fucking catnip, right? The, the way, you know, for an example that's closer to home for me, the way that there's a lot of connections and stuff that run through Stephen King and they were sort of brought into focus and fruition in the Dark Tower series, fucking catnip. You know, I'm not, but I kind of felt like rereading all of Stephen King. To, but I'm, I'm not because it's. I don't have much time left in my life comparative to the universe, so I'm not going to be doing that. But for a lot of reasons, that is catnip. That is absolute fucking catnip for me at this time in my life. That's exhausting. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I can't even commit to a fucking trilogy, Ian. I'm not- no, just, it's, I like to enough. skitter around. I like to grab from here and read there and read that and read this. And I'm I'm just not going to immerse myself in one world of one writer for the I will say for the fans takes. for the fans of McKeon, we apologize. I do think again with both these books, if I'd read them on uh, in and around when they came out, the Peter Temple I would have loved unreservedly, even with the the plot MacGuffin shenanigans yeah. in the last third, I would have just been, well, yeah, give me more. Um, and then with the slow horses, I, I probably would have gone, yeah, got a lot more excited about that than I do now. We're just because we're older, Kirsten, and we're crankier, and we've read too <laughs> we're much. We're crankier. We've we read have, too much. We have, and there's too, too much. much to read. But also, the other thing is, and I'll end on this. Uh, this has been a terrific year for books. 2023 yep. has been an amazing year for novels, and I'll, if anyone comes to the Nova Mob in a month, I'll go through my top ten. And I know what good is. 
I know what great is. I mm. mean, uh, the Chandra Sacred from last month is a great, great, is novel. a great book. I know we know so what that is. This, well, I know it's objective and subjective. The two of us, we know what the benchmark is, and these books just. There, there is subjectivity in enjoyment of a book. There is subjectivity in whether you connect with a book, whether it works for you, whether that story, that genre, those characters work. That's 100% subjective and I can only speak to myself. There is a certain level of objectivity in craft, in how a novel is working or not working, um, in what you do with text, in how you, uh, you know, whether internally uh, satisfies its own rules and logic and sets things up that it then fulfills or doesn't in a satisfying way as well. There is a certain level of objectivity around that. And part of all of that is what makes a great book. It's not elitist to say that books, certain books are better than others and not just because you may or may not have enjoyed them more. There are books I don't enjoy that I recognise are fucking great books. I just don't connect with them. But they are fucking great books and I wish I did connect with them more. And the, the, I look, I think The Broken Shore, the first two-thirds of it, is a great fucking novel. It is so good. It is so well written. It is just everything. And then it falls into a morass of, of plot, which is like it's almost offensive because what it does, it takes this really real world and extensive horror that is child sexual abuse and human trafficking and so on and makes it something you don't care about. You know, and it's like, I'm, I I want to care about that. You've just annoyed me by bringing it in at the very end instead of this other stuff, which is also really fucking important that now, you, you know, you, you don't care about as a book. Can I just say this one thing? This is this is a mess because we should have spoken about this 40 minutes ago. But the, so I read the age review that came out at the time that the book was published and it's very positive. It's actually a really good review. It doesn't mm. say who wrote it, but back in 2005, 2005. But it's funny because it goes through the key themes of the novel are da da da, and one th- and one other thing that I can't say without giving because it will reveal a plot point. The plot, but that's a problem. That's a problem. If you yeah. can't talk about that because it's actually so you know riven into the plot that because that is part of the reveal, then you that's not good. Yeah. That's not a good thing. So yeah. uh, that made me laugh. Anyway, I mean, what what let's slow slow horses does really well. Like thematically, it is on point. Like. It's it's themes about surprisingly. I, mean, I shouldn't say surprisingly. It is only fifteen years ago. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's themes about you know the disintegration right of the, the rise of the right wing, the disintegration Correct. of consensus reality. Um, you know, the the mistrust uh, that citizens have for their governments and their government organisations. That is that is the book. Like it, it is on point with its themes and what it's talking about and its concerns. It, it, it's very current in that sense, very mm. timely. And the fact that it was written so long ago, it just, you know, brilliant. That is brilliant. It, Mick Heron's done a terrific yeah. job there, but it just isn't a good You package. know what's interesting to me, and I don't know because I haven't read them. We're going to keep I, going, I, aren't I we? probably won't. No, just really quickly, probably won't read them. But, like, <laughs> he, you said he had, like, about a dozen Slough House novels, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It feels like the plot of this one, like MI5 kidnapping a citizen <laughs> to be beheaded, that they're going to rescue at the last. Like that seems a really, really high on the chart of like, you know, like really, really like outlandish plot devices you can create. I don't know where he goes with another 10 books. Ian Sales, <laughs> who has read several of these books, <laughs> says that, yeah, essentially says yes and then says they get more ridiculous as they go because of the bar he has set. So I'm actually like, that's why I'm still curious to read them. Spooks because took like the TV series Spooks, which I do love a lot, took quite a few seasons to get to ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah, like, it, it, they, they ran well, through plausible, was, they ran through he, everything, he, and they they you know Ian Sales was one opinion. Uh, not every, not anyone else said that, yeah. but he did say that they just get so outlandish just to be yeah suspension disbelievers. It it, it seems like. In Slow Horses, the the actual plot that you that is revealed, that sets a really high bar for <laughs> I can maybe just maybe just kind of believe this might happen. Where the fuck do you go from that with ten more books, Ian? I don't know. Let me know if you read them. I mean, I'm genuinely well, curious. Well, second and third season are <laughs> going to be faithful, and you'll find out that way. <laughs> True. All right, there anyway, we go. Um, I I was I don't regret reading either of these books. No, no, I not will say, like 
there, there was enough in, in of interest for me in both of them and enjoyment for me that I don't regret reading either of them. And I am satisfied of having sampled this. Yes. <laughs> Next episode, our last for this uh, year, will be uh, You're Recommending After the Forest by Kel Woods. Yep. Which only just popped up on my Kindle, I should it, say. It did. It's only just been published, so um, we might – try to do less spoilers than we conventionally would because people may not have time to even get the book. But um, I'm really looking forward to reading this. So excited. the book that I am extremely looking forward to reading is I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home by Laurie Moore. Great title. Love a book with a long title or a title with punctuation. You got me. Yes. (laughs) And it's short. So there you go. Um, so send feedback uh, by commenting at the website, writerandcritic.podbean.com. Send an email to writerandcritic at Gmail. And if you can sponsor, sponsor us on Patreon, we would love that very much. We would love it. And thank you to all our wonderful patrons. We yes, really do you. appreciate you. So on that note, and uh, again, sorry for the sound quality if it's not 100%. Uh, it's mostly Kirsten's fault. Uh, and it's <laughs> so, so signing off is uh, – Affling Award winner Ian Mond and whatever whatever Kirsten's won. You know, I have a shelf. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone. Yeah, that's the that's the least of the issues. <laughs>